the Sunday Sermons Podcast. It is the 4th of July. I've got to say I'm thankful to be an American. I'm thankful to live in a country where uh, at least the ideals that we have have trickled down from godly values. That that we live in a place where people have freedom of speech. Even if we disagree with them, they have the right to say what they want to say. And at least so far, right now, we still have the right to say what we say and what we know about God. And we have the freedom to say that without fear of persecution. That's actually rare in this world today. I'm thankful for all that's good in America. I'm thankful for everybody who made that. May we not stop trying to make it better. May we never give up trying to make those ideals happen in every direction and for every person who lives here. I I hope that we'll continue to grow and continue to be more of what we say we believe in. So I am thankful for that. But again, as we go into the actual message here, I want to acknowledge also that Jesus didn't talk about America. He spoke about a kingdom that transcends every country. Wherever you live, a a wonderful country, a terrible country, wherever you live, if you are a believer, you are primarily a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And whoever is your president or your prime minister or your chancellor or your dictator or whatever other king or queen or ruler you've got, your real ruler as a believer is Jesus Christ. You have one king, the king of kings. And that is, he told us these stories that he told us so that no matter where we live and what the situation is, we can live that kingdom. We can build that kingdom together. This morning, one of the stories that we're going to jump right into is actually one of the more controversial of his parables. It's one that people have a lot of opinions about. And before we jump right into it, I want to remind you that these stories are stories Jesus made up to teach us specific things. And sometimes we just dig a little, we, we get a little too excited. We just, we just try to find meaning in too many spots of it. For example, if I was to say this morning, a Christian, a Hindu, and an atheist walked into a bar. Most of you are expecting a punchline, right? You're, you're, expecting, you're expecting something silly or funny or, or maybe insightful, but you're not going to say, how did they know each other? Which bar? Do, do Hindus drink? You, you, you're not going to ask those questions. You know it's a joke. And if I said, hey, a chick, why did the chicken cross the road? You're going to go, to get to the other side, or you're going to expect something maybe a little more creative, but you're not going to go, I wonder why he said chicken. There's a lot of animals that could have crossed the road. What is it about chickens and their desire to cross roads that made John say chicken this morning? You know it's a joke. Does that make sense? And so there is, I've got to tell you, there are some wonderful things embedded in the specific symbols Jesus used. And it's a really wonderful thing to ask those questions. What if there's even more? But where we need to start when we understand these stories is what's the point that he said was the point? Does that make sense? What was the context? What did he say it meant? What's the main point of this idea? And then if there's extra information, that's even better. That's why my favorite joke, and then we're going to jump right in. My, my favorite joke, it, not in the whole world, but one of my favorites is, what did the egg say to the frying pan? Nothing. Eggs can't talk. <laughs> it, 
In Luke 16, Jesus tells this story. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Now already there's a couple of big things that people disagree about. For one thing, this is, this is a cool trivia thing for you. This is the only parable Jesus told where he named somebody. Notice he just says a certain rich man. It's always a certain this person or this person or a sower or whatever he's going to say that. But here he gives the guy named Lazarus. A lot of people think maybe it's a true story, but it's, it's not. I can just tell you that this morning. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a parable. It's a story Jesus made up to teach us something. But the name Lazarus is a, it's a derivative of the word Eleazar, the name Eleazar, both of which means God is my helper. Maybe there's some irony in there. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus. Maybe he was sitting there that day and he said, and there was a certain rich man or a certain beggar named Lazarus. I, I don't know, but that's not the point of this story. Are you with me? There's, there's some cool stuff in here, but that's not the point. See, this story was told in the middle of a bunch of stuff that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who were enamored with their power and with their authority and with their riches. And he was talking to rich people and he was talking to a bunch of people about how the kingdom just works completely differently. And in that context, he tells this story. And he told it in a way where it's kind of picking a fight. Dr. Stanley Toussaint said he would have named this story, Why Rich People Go to Hell, Not the Rich Man and Lazarus. Because this is kind of the, the this is, that's how this would have sounded to the original hearers. It's, it, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a fun story. It's not a, a cool little heartwarming story. This is a scary thing that he's saying to rich people. Well, let's keep going. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. And there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Now, this is one of the more modern translations. Uh, if you've got an old one, you're going to see some other words in there. And a lot of people have gotten way off track with that. So again, I want to try and stay off track this morning, but I think this is significant. I want to mention this. Abraham's bosom is what it says in the King James. And a lot of people said, oh, that must be, Abraham's bosom must be what's that side of the chasm that you're going to hear about in a second. That's not what it is. It, it, what, the bosom was what they called that seat of honor. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Jesus saying, when you go to somebody's house, don't take the seat of honor. Okay, if you were coming to my house, this sounds crazy. We would never say it like this. But if you came to my house, Jesus would have said, don't sit in John Pryor's bosom. Okay, that, that's the seat of honor at the host's house. Okay, so what's happening here is not... This is, uh, there, there's a special heaven called Abraham's bosom. What's happening is Abraham's there and Lazarus is the guest of honor at the banquet, sitting right next to Abraham. Does that make sense? Another thing that's really interesting is the word that Jesus uses for the place of the dead. That's one of the reasons it's translated like that modern translations is he uses Hades. And to the Old Testament people, they would have known a word called Sheol, 
or another term that we would translate as the grave, they, the Old Testament doesn't actually talk about the afterlife very much. And most of what it does talk about is actually in poetry or people kind of imagining what would happen or asking God, don't let me die because I want to do this before I die. Don't let me go down to the grave. Don't let me go to Sheol. There's not a lot where God says, here's what's going to happen after you die in the Old Testament. But he doesn't reference any of that. He uses the word Hades. Hades is the Greek god of death. Hades is the place that's named after him in Greek mythology. Do you think Jesus is really trying to teach them Greek mythology? No. But by that point in history, the word Hades had come to mean just the place of the dead. It was a generic way to say where you go when you die. Kind of like we say somebody passed on. Or they went to a better place. Okay? So Jesus is setting this story in a very generic, fictional-ish kind of a setting of where you go when you die. Because he's not trying to teach us necessarily about what heaven looks like. He's trying to make a point about what needs to happen on earth. Which is what happens in all of his parables. The key moral of every single parable is something that needs to happen right here, right now, in this life, getting ready for what happens in the next life. And the only place in the whole Bible that paints a picture that sounds anything like this one of the afterlife is this story right here in Luke 16. Maybe that's what it looks like, maybe it's not, but again, that's not the point of this story. Does this make sense? Everybody with me so far? Okay, so we're going to keep going. I won't keep unpacking it every single thing. But those are some ones that people fight about. And I just thought it was worth taking a little bit of time to, to actually clarify a couple of things. So here we go. Both of them are dead. Lazarus is at the seat of honor. The rich man's on the other side. He's suffering, but he hasn't changed his perspective of Lazarus very much. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. He still thinks he's better than Lazarus somehow. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Now again, people get really tied up in a lot of the, the imagery here. But here's the bottom line. This is what he's saying. Everybody who would have been listening to Jesus that day, especially the Pharisees, they knew one of the things the Old Testament is incredibly clear about is that if you have riches, you have a responsibility to help the poor. If you have shelter, you share it. If you have food, you share it. If there are widows and orphans or foreigners among you, the godly take care of them. That's non-negotiable all throughout the Old Testament. That is justice. That's what needs to happen. So here's this guy who had everything and a beggar who has nothing dumped at his door every single day of his life and he does nothing for him. Nothing. And he basically goes to hell for it. Does that make sense? He's saying, hey, you, the reason Lazarus had nothing is because you didn't share. He wouldn't have had nothing if you had done your job. 
Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. I, I got to just derail again one more time. I, this, this just cracked me up. There was a, in that message that I watched from Dr. Toussaint that I quoted earlier, uh, he just had this funny story, and I just, it, it's too funny. I got to share it to you. So, there was this really prestigious school, and you know how in yearbooks they'll put the, the senior's picture, and then there's like a little quote or a scripture verse or a motto or something underneath that? Okay, well, this one of the guys, he put Luke 16, 28, and it got through all the edits and got published there. Luke 16, 28 says, for I have five brothers and I want to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. <laughs> that dude is a genius. That has nothing to do with what the whole point. I just, it's, I, that's just... That's fine. So Abraham says, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. But the rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees and the other rich people of the day that had found all of their holiness in what they don't do or keeping little minutia kind of laws from the Old Testament and skipping all the stuff God said he was passionate about like justice and taking care of the poor and orphans and widows. They skipped all of that so that they could just measure their, a tenth of all their spices and stuff like that. And he's calling them straight out on that. He's saying, you're evil. And he's saying also, by the way, this is one of the first times he mentions what's about to happen. He's saying, even if somebody comes back from the dead, you're not going to listen because you haven't listened for Moses and the prophets. Now, there's some other great stuff in this story, but that's the point of it. Does that make sense? We've got to not only listen, but act on the things that God is passionate about. About And here, here's the first big truth we've got to own together this morning. I'd like you to say it out loud with me if you would. God doesn't just give, he invests. One more time. God doesn't just give, he invests. Just like the rich man. Now you read through the whole Bible and I do recommend that. Whatever Bible plan you pick, whatever works for you, you need to do it. But you, as you read, you, you need the whole thing to really get the perspective. And as you do that, you're going to see God interacting with people in completely different ways. Sometimes it seems like he's a different person, but the heart of God is revealed in what's the same. The things that don't change, the ways that don't change. He only spoke to Moses in a burning bush. Nobody else got a burning bush. Are you with me? But God always calls people to serve him. He always wants to use people to help him deliver other people from slavery to sin, Literal slavery, he's always about those things. And here's some other things that are always the same about God. God acts intentionally and strategically. He always blesses us so that we can bless others. Jesus told stories about a kingdom where work gets done, where resources get shared, where lost things get found, where investments yield returns and living things produce fruit. 
God expects something out of what he gives us. He, 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 it, it comes from him. It's a gift. It's free, as in we don't get to earn it. We can't earn it. There's no way we could. But when he invites us into the plan, it's like hiring somebody to do a job. You don't just hire them so you can just give them money. You hire them to do the job. And it's the same way when God gives us stuff. You see this in so many of the stories about living things producing fruit, especially. For example, the parable of the sower. This is one of the best known ones of Jesus. And by the way, that's what sowing looks like. They literally just threw the seeds out. You've heard this story, right? Anybody heard this story before? Awesome. Okay. So I'll tell it quickly, but then we're going to actually get the actual words of Jesus where he tells us what this means. Jesus said that the sower went out to sow seed and some of it fell on the path. But the path's hard, so birds came and ate it before it ever sunk into the dirt at all. Some of it fell among rocks, and so it got some shade and some shelter from the rocks. And so it started growing pretty fast, but it didn't have deep roots. And as soon as it got out in the bright sunlight, it just died. Some fell among thorns. So it had shelter and structure, and it was able to send down some roots. But as it grew, it got strangled out by the thorns. But some fell on good soil, fertile soil. And that soil embraced the seed, and the seed grew and produced crops. Lots and lots of fruit came from this crops. And later his disciples came to Jesus and said, what does that mean? What are you trying to tell us? And this is one of the few where he actually tells us what the symbols mean. It's pretty cool. Luke 8. This is the meaning of the parable, says Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. The seed is God's word. Notice he doesn't identify the sower. You know why? Because the sower is whoever gives you God's word. The sower is me this morning. The sower is whatever Bible or Bible app you're holding in your hand. It's whatever Bible study you're watching on Right Now Media. It's God himself speaking to you. However God's word gets to you, that's the sower. But the seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message, only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, and then they fall away when they face temptation. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly, the message is grouted out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. And we'll come back to this one in a second. But this leads us to the next thing that we're going to say out loud together. The next huge truth about how God invests in us and what he expects back. We've got to remember that ultimately it's really him doing it in us and through us. It comes through him and his Holy Spirit. Let, let's say this together. God's spirit grows his fruit in us. In Galatians 5, we have a lot more about what that fruit looks like. You've heard this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Have you heard this one before? It's, I, it's really refreshing to me every time that I look back at that beautiful passage to remember that it's not me having to generate love. It's not me having to generate joy and peace in situations that I don't 
feel like I should have joy and peace. That is the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit produces that in us. Our job is to use the spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, worship, all all the other things that we do to worship God. Those help us eliminate the rocks. They help us get rid of all of the distractions. Help us get rid of the thorns, all the things that strangle out God's word and keep us from being able to fully give ourselves to him. This partnership that we have with God, this team that he has created with each of us and then all of us as one great big team, our job is to do our best to just be the fertile soil. The spirit produces the fruit in us. What a refreshing, powerful truth that is. Mark 4, Jesus has another short story. It's a shorter version of the story that makes that point even clearer. Jesus also said the kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows. But he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. First a leaf blade pushes through and then the heads of wheat are formed and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle for the harvest time has come. Here's another story Jesus told with the same basic motif, same basic idea. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. Now, I've heard a lot of great ideas about what the gardener represents. Some people say that's God because of the gardener, or God is the gardener in John 15, the vine and the branches metaphor that Jesus uses. Some people say that that can't be because the gardener calls the guy sir. So if we're the person who's complaining about somebody else not producing fruit, why would God call it? That's missing the point, y'all. We're digging too deep. We're asking questions about why a chicken. Are you with me? This is what he's talking about. We are expected to produce fruit, but thank God there's grace involved as well. Thank God there's some extra chances in this equation. Yes, we're supposed to produce fruit that's non-negotiable that is God's vision he produces it in us he expects us to grow and produce fruit but he also gives us chances he gives us grace he gives us redemption it's not just instant you didn't do anything cut you down every single time anybody besides me thankful for that wow what a blessing Another thing that I love about uh, this week, over the course of this summer, we're talking about Tolkien a lot, using some of his stories. One thing I love about him and his group, the Inklings, him and C.S. Lewis and some other people, and also the stories that they wrote, is they always worked that in. 
They extended grace to each other in their every Tuesday meetings. If you study how they lived, you can see ways that that was transformative in their lives. C.S. Lewis was an atheist before he started hanging out with all them. And Tolkien actually led him to the Lord by extending grace to this very brilliant man, very powerful author. He, he extended grace to him and, and patience and love. And I, I for one, am very thankful for the fruit of that. But they also worked it in all their stories. And one of the greatest, story, uh, greatest grace moments in uh, The Lord of the Rings is the character Boromir. If you've never heard of Boromir, you've probably at least seen this meme. The one does not just walk into Mordor meme. Anybody seen this one? No? Not into memes? Okay, that's okay. This is pretty popular. <laughs> it's pretty popular on the internet. I bet you guys know. I bet you guys know where it is. But anyhow, in the story, in the story, Boromir says one does not simply walk into Mordor. And it sounds like he's like putting a bummer. But that speech, the whole thing is actually the catalyst that makes them form the fellowship of the ring. The whole team that the story revolves around. He's like, you can't just send one person to get this done. This is not a simple thing. This is a big deal. It's going to take a team. It's going to take all of us working together. He was the one who was insightful enough to bring that point up. He wasn't a complete loser. He did make some really big mistakes. He has a short story arc, and it starts one of the first things he says to Aragorn, who we talked about a couple weeks ago and we'll talk about again. He was, he's the king. The first thing he says to him is, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. But by the end of this short little story in the this, in this story, the way it ends is he's come back around. He's owned his mistakes and he gives his life to save the hobbits who are carrying the ring and help them escape. I'd like you to watch this scene. It actually begins with him saying to Aragorn, forgive me, I did not see, I failed you all. This is what happens next. They took the little ones. He's down. Frodo, where is Frodo? I let Frodo go. And you did what I could not. Forgive me. I did not see. I have failed you all. No, Boromir. You fought bravely. You have kept your honor. I do not know what strength is in my blood. But I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. Nor our people fail. That scene ends with Aragorn kissing the forehead of the dead Boromir and saying, Peace, peace, son of Gondor. May we always extend that kind of grace to each other. May we always know that that kind of grace is available to us. We can change whatever mistakes we have made. When we own them, when we admit them, when we address them, when we change them, there is grace. There's not just the responsibility to produce fruit. There is grace and mercy and the power to be transformed. And there always will be in the kingdom of heaven. But again, remember the story of the workers in the vineyard? 
It's, it's God's vision. It's God who gives us the job. It's God who's in control of who gets rewarded with what and all of that stuff. We must never forget that. And we must also never forget our part of the bargain. Billy Graham says, if you are a true Christian, you will reveal through your daily life the fruit of the Spirit and all the other Christian virtues which round out a Christ-like personality. We must never forget that it's his word, it's his seed, it's his garden. But it's our job to pay attention. It's our job to, to become the fertile soil. It's our job to make our hearts available to him and not be hard and make it so easy for the devil to just take it away before we, it ever even connects. It's our job to remove all the things that block the sun. And that keep us from putting down roots. It's our job to put down roots. And to, to get rid of the thorns that, get, that are around us. And God helps us with all of that. The people around us help us with all of that. All of this is stuff that we work as a team. But those are things we have choices about. Those are things that we get to do. For example, that passage in Galatians 5 where it says the fruit of the Spirit. It says... It's the Spirit, right? And it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But look at the next couple verses. It says those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross. Who does that? That's us. And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our life. Who makes that daily choice? That's us. It's the Spirit leading us. It's the Spirit producing fruit. But it's us nailing our sinful natures to the wall. It's us choosing to follow His leading in our lives. It's a team. He's working together with us. Brothers and sisters, this morning, someone came to me recently with a word from God, and it's been percolating in my heart. They said, we need to examine the wineskins. Examine the wineskins. A couple weeks ago, I talked about the story that Jesus told, more of a metaphor about the wineskins. But basically what he says is that um, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. As it starts to ferment, it'll burst, and it ruins everything. This morning... I'd like us all to consider, to examine the wineskins that we have. As a church, we're doing that, by the way. As a church, we're rearranging stuff. There's something in your bulletin today talking about some new growth groups that will be started. This is something we're, we are passionate about. We're so excited to try to rearrange whatever needs to be arranged so that every single person here actually becomes a disciple, a fully equipped, fully faithful follower of Jesus. We want to create these groups so everybody gets to be part, not just of the big group, but of at least one smaller group. We're having to get rid of some of the old wineskins so that we can get the new ones in place so that the new wine can flow. Are you with me on this? But I'm asking you this morning to make those changes in your own life. You're not going to fit the stuff we're talking about today into whatever you've already experienced. Even if you're following Jesus, he's got something fresh to tell you this morning. And I invite you this morning, I invite you this morning to do whatever it takes to make sure that you are the fertile soil. There might be something you've got to get rid of, something you've got to let him take out of you. There might be some sort of, fertilization is hard, you know that, right? It means manure gets dumped on you and you get rained on. 
But you need to submit to that process because you've got to be, I've got to be, we've got to be the fertile soil that embraces the seed of God's word. Whatever you need to do today, whatever old wineskins you need to throw out, whatever new ones you need to, to offer up to God for him to fill. Would you make that choice today? Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you need to get baptized this morning. Maybe you need to join our church formally. I don't know what he's calling you to do. Maybe he's calling you into missions. Maybe he's calling you to forgive somebody. Maybe you just need to come and pray. Maybe you need to stay exactly where you are and do it privately. Whatever you need to do to submit to Jesus this morning, that's what I'm asking you to do as we stand and sing.